Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to episode 54 of Flavors Unknown podcast. Today, it's all about mushroom, fermentation, and koji with Chef Jeremy Umansky from Cleveland, Ohio. He has a book out called Koji Alchemy that I recommend highly. We will talk as well about the alcohol and drug addiction in the industry. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the country. If you are new to this podcast, my guest last week was Chef Matt Bolus from the 404 Kitchen in Nashville, Tennessee. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. You can find the show notes from this episode on the website flavorsunknown.com. And now, here is my conversation with Chef Jeremy Umansky. Hi, Chef. Uh, how are you? Welcome to Flavors Unknown. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing all right, all things considered. Yeah, exactly. So how, how is it uh, going with you and uh, how are you navigating through the, the current situation? You know, overall, things for us have been, been pretty well. As a restaurant, we were really fortunate that a, a good half of our business before the pandemic was to-go food. So it was pretty easy for us to kind of cultivate the rest and have it all be to-go food. You know, we're, we're really thankful, too, that our guests and our customers have been just really understanding of, of what's going on. We've had very little issues with customers demanding one thing or another and, and just understanding the way that we have to do things now is the ways that, that we have to do them. Yeah. And so did you ever close the restaurant larder? We at the did. beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, we, we did. We were closed for almost a month, like three and a half weeks from the end of March. And we, we reopened, I believe it was April 16th. And, you know, that was, that was multifaceted. I mean, I mean, things were really taking off with the pandemic. There was a lot of unknown. It actually took us a good two weeks to get all the protective gear we needed for our employees and for ourselves and for our customers and also come up with a game plan of how our business was going to look, you know, because it was being changed so much. So, yeah, we, we were closed. You know, we were really fortunate that we were a very solvent business in terms of our cash flow prior to that. So we, we hold it as a point of pride that we were able to, during that time we were closed, we were able to pay all of our bills, our rent, anything that we owed anybody. We, we didn't owe anybody money, which we were super proud about. Wow. And, you know, we were able to open up with not much money at all, but just a little bit so we could get some, you know, order some fresh food and whatnot. Yeah, because you were mentioning, um, you know, before, you know, we were on the show that you had like um, half of your you know, business type of business was it like to go food even prior to the pandemic? 
So what what did you change? Because you have like the other half, yeah, you have a lot of like uh, local produce, correct? That you are selling into um, into the restaurant or the the location. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the biggest things for us is uh, we became very well known for our charcuterie boards that we do. Both we do a meat based one and a vegetarian one that we can even make vegan. Those are very labor intensive for us. Um, I mean, it takes one person, you know, almost 10 minutes to put one together because of the amount of things that we make and that we put on them. So we haven't, this is actually going to be coming up the first week that we're offering them again. And those made up a good 20% of our dine-in sales. So we, we sell a lot of those, you know, so those and the variety of things we offer at any given time, we would have 10 different types of charcuterie that we were making and a dozen or 14 different types of pickles that we were making, six to 10 different deli, seasonal deli salads. Uh, we've had to pare that down considerably. I mean, we've been selling one or two items of pre-cut charcuterie that we're pre-packing in, in our grab-and-go case we have. We've really only been selling two, maybe three types of pickles, and we're only offering a handful, maybe three or four different deli salads. So we've greatly pared down the amount of offerings that we've been, been doing on a given day. What type of pickles are you, um, are you offering? You, you name it. Right now, the three that we had in the case this, this past week, we, had, we always have a kosher dill pickle. But depending on the season, we rotate what it's made from. So we just moved out of green beans and now we're into cucumbers. We, so we have that. We have a, what we call a koji cabbage pickle. So we take heads of cabbage, we cut them in half, we sear them to blacken them, and then we ferment them with koji and pickling spice. So we have that. And last year, a good friend of ours, Nick and Shelley, they have this wonderful little farm called Fallen Apple Farm, about 40 minutes south of Cleveland. Nick is working on developing a, a pocket watermelon. So a watermelon that's about the size of a baseball. And he brought us a whole bunch last year and we, we sweet pickled them in like a Russian style. So we, we had been sitting on them for a, a year. We got them from him last August. And we finally put those in the deli case. Oh, wow. How does it taste? I, I've never it, seen that. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you know, there's a tradition in America, uh, a very old tradition of pickled water melon rind. And then if we look up through parts of Asia, like Russia, and then into the old Russian Confederacy, you know, countries like Ukraine and Yugoslavia and, and throughout there, there's a tradition of actually pickling the whole watermelon typically sliced. And whether it's the American tradition or that Asian Euro European tradition, they all tend to be with like hard spices, you know, the things that you'd put into apple pie and a little sweetness. So we paired that. We got some last year, some beautiful, beautiful ancho chilies. I remember that one of our farmers grew. So we blackened those off in the smoker. We added them to the watermelon. We added some pickling spice and a little bit of sugar. And they're fantastic. They're, they're spiced. They're spicy. They're sweet. They've got the nice crisp 
crunch from the the rind and the peel. It's really a dynamic pickle. Uh, several people commented this past week, even even a couple that had had pickled watermelon before, that they they've really never eaten anything like it. Hmm. So what what gets you into um, got you into fermentation? I was really fortunate when I was in culinary school in the Hudson Valley. I um, had the opportunity to meet and work directly with Sander Katz, who is the patron saint of fermentation. And working with Sander allowed me to really just kind of fall off this cliff into this pool of fermentation. You know, and that's going back, I want to say about 15 years now at that at this point. And it, it really started my love for, for all things fermented. And then so how did you move from like fermentation into, I would say, the world of, uh, of like mushrooms and, and koji? Yeah, and, and it kind of goes back to that time period when I had the opportunity to, to study under Sander. I was doing many things. So I was a student in culinary school. I had the opportunity to study under Sander. I was very active and in, in one of the co-convivium leaders of Slow Food Hudson Valley. So I was very active in the food rights and farm to table movement. And I was working as a chef at a local restaurant who was making a lot of charcuterie. And I was land manager of a farm. So I was fermenting, I was making charcuterie, I was growing vegetables and mushrooms, coincidentally, on the farm. When I was working on the farm, we did a program where we identified different plants and fungi that farmers could easily work with to add value to their product offering. So things that were growing in the border areas around the farm for the mushrooms or weeds that were growing up between the rows, knowing which ones were, were edible, we were working with a, a huge co-op of other farmers to help them learn about these foods instead of spraying or, or even just ignoring them, being able to take the time to harvest and then have something added value that could be sent down to the New York City markets. So that's, that's kind of when when everything really took off for me. So what kind of mushroom were you, you were growing? What kind of fungi? The main that we were growing at the time were oyster mushroom, but we were, we were going out with a mycologist and we were going into the local fields and forests and just learning about every edible fungi in the area. So that in the event they grew on our farm or in land adjacent or various land that we had access to, we could harvest and sell them. Okay. Did you um, happen to uh, face like a challenging situation that there's some fungi or type of mushroom that uh, you were not able to, to grow? Yeah. In terms of growing, you know, our biggest thing that we focused on was the, the oyster mushrooms. Okay. Uh, we really didn't try to grow so many others because we wanted to take advantage of what was happening happening naturally in the okay. land around us. So okay. it was it was more of just dealing with the seasons and nature and learning. The big focus was learning how to identify these wild ones so that they could be brought to market. Okay. 
I was just curious if uh, one of my favorite mushroom is morel mushroom. So yeah. I was curious if you were growing, you know, where happened to grow those on on that. So <laughs> I, I wish, and and we're kindred spirits in that. My my daughter, her name is Amelia Morcella Luis. And Are you kidding me? <laughs> Morcella is the Latin name for the morel yeah, mushroom. That's her middle yeah. name. <laughs> it, it is. We we uh, we call her Mushroom Millie. I, I, you know, when I used to live in uh, in Europe and I was traveling very often to Scandinavia, uh, Finland is somehow, I have no idea why, maybe you do know that, it seems to be a land which is very good for growing morel, morel mushrooms. And every time I was going there on the market, I could buy like, uh, you know, a big bag of it and put it on the plane with me back to France when I was based at, at that time. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. People, People were explaining to me that the people in Finland were explaining to me that they just like put like old newspaper and they, they buried old newspaper in their backyard. And then several years after they have more mushroom like, like, you know, growing there. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What's, what's going on? <laughs> if, so, if, if only yeah. truffles were so easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How did you? Got into like uh, exploring because I know you are into exploring cooking techniques and and spending time dissecting you know food and understanding the why and so on. So how did you get into like koji? So koji was uh, relatively recent for me. About 2014, I was working with my friend Jonathan Sawyer at his restaurant Trentina here in Cleveland, which is. Uh, was just a fantastic restaurant, and I was running all of the fermentation and the meat curing and and kind of research and development for for all the food that we were creating. and And I was asked to make a miso uh, from chickpeas, something that would have a, an Italian kind of spirit behind it. Uh, whether or not it tasted Italian or not, it still had you know, a, a fundamental Mediterranean ingredient. And at that point, I I figured, oh, I mean, you know, miso is just fermented bean paste. I could just mix some beans and some salt and ferment them. And as I did some research, I realized it's not that simple. It's still plenty simple, but I needed this ingredient called koji. So I did some more research and found out that it's this wonderful mold that is literally, I, I say it, it is the backbone of many civilizations throughout Asia. Uh, so many of the foods, especially the core ingredient foods, things like amino pastes like miso or jang and alcohols like makoli or sake. And, you know, soy sauces like soychu, so many of them cannot be made without koji because of how it works and what it does. So once I kind of uh, my own personal discovery of this ingredient and realizing that it's a fungi, even though it's a mold, it doesn't produce like a mushroom, but it was very similar to, to in many respects to mushrooms that I had cultivated before and ones that I had worked with in wild settings, I set out to, you know, explore with it. 
and really just kind of hit the ground running with with my love for it. It's incredibly easy to become infatuated with it. You um, just published like um, a book, so uh, I know everyone probably listening know about it. It's called like Koji Alchemy. Um, I think it was published like earlier this year. What what is that book about? It's um, people can make koji at home and you know do like recipes with them um, with it. Yeah. So during the time that I was kind of experimenting with koji and and you know fitting it into like my cultural lens and the food that I was creating, I met a fantastic individual who has since become a brother from another mother. His his name is Richard Shi, and Rich. By day is a, a mechanical engineer, and by night he's a fermentation consultant. He's he's a first generation Taiwanese immigrant, and he was doing all this wonderful work with Koji at the same time I was. And we via via the internet we connected and hit it off so much that we decided to go ahead and, and eventually write this book. And the book we were very specific about. You know, there, we could have written two different books. We could have written how we use Koji and how we came to it, which is what we did. Or we could have written a book about the traditional evolution and the traditional products made with Koji. And while we do touch on that considerably, the traditional aspects of it, we talk about how we've used it, you know, in the Western world and how our understanding evolved based on all the precedent that was laid down before us. So the book is filled with wonderful contributors, uh, everybody from scientists that study the mold to reporters that have written about it to Koji spore producers, the seed producers in Japan have all contributed and there's different essays from them and recipes but one of the things we really wanted to focus on with this book was we didn't want it to be a cookbook in the traditional sense. Cookbooks have become two things. They become very rigid, meaning if you don't make this exactly how it is, it's not what it is. And they've also become, well, we, we greatly appreciate it. They've become almost mundanely artistic. You know, they all have similar photography and layouts and designs. And uh, as beautiful as they are, from cookbook to cookbooks, things typically in the last 10 years have looked very homogenous, you know, very similar. And you don't necessarily see outside of the picture of the food, the personality or the inflection of the people writing it. Um, because the layout and the design was so standardized. So we kind of wanted to do the opposite. While we do have recipes in the book, there's just a couple of recipes that are very exact. Everything else is more or less ratio-based. So we discussed, if you want to make an amino paste, something similar to miso, we discuss, instead of just using soybeans, we say you can use any protein. So if you want to use a different bean, if you want to use some smoked salmon, if you want to use boiled chicken breast, if you want to use whey protein powder or hemp protein powder, you can, can do all of that. So we wanted to give people the tools 
to explore and use Koji through their own cultural lens. But so how do I grow Koji at home? You know, it's pretty straightforward. And, and what you have to remember is people have been working with this organism for thousands and thousands of years. And going back even 150 years, people had far less access to technology and modern resources that we have now. So if people could do it that far back with no problem, you can do it now with all the access to information and technological resources you have. So it all starts with the koji spore, which is the mold's equivalent of a seed. And simply what you do is, and these seeds are very tiny, so you you kind of mist them, you dust them over a cooked starch, whether that starch is a bean or barley or rice or wheat, you, you cook it off, you allow it to cool to about body temperature, you sprinkle the mold spores on, and then you hold the starch in a place where you can have high humidity, about 90% humidity, oh, wow. and a relatively warm temperature give or take 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's as simple as a fish tub or a plastic tub or a, a shallow sheet tray, you know, putting the the starch and spores in there, wrapping it in plastic and holding it somewhere warm for about two days and the koji will grow itself. And I've read that you were saying that, uh, you know, it has a very distinct and very nice, you know, flavor. Or aroma. Uh, can yeah. you describe it? How, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's it, it, in almost the most romantic of contexts. I mean, it smells intoxicating and sensual. And we compare it to this mix of maybe like Granny Smith apple and honeysuckle meets some like roasted chestnut and just a little bit of like mushroom kind of earthy funk. It smells, you know, if you pick up a piece of gorgonzola that has mold on it or a piece of uh, sauces on sec that has a, a white mold on it, and you smell those, mm -hmm. they do smell delicious, but they also smell funky. Funky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like, like, a, like a wet basement or a wet dog sure. even, you know, or like a cave. Koji is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It is fruity, it is floral, it smells sweet. You know, a, a good friend of Rich and I, Cynthia Graber, she has a great podcast called Gastropod. She has a line in the book where she said if she could distill Koji's aroma, she would wear it as a perfume. Okay. Wow. Is the, like the aroma, you know, different depending of like the base when it grows onto? So you were talking like, pro, you know, like um, a starch base, like beans and so on, but you were talking about protein as well, you know, salmon and, and so on. Does it give like the same profile to any of those, you know, produce? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, each base ingredient that you grow it on or use it with has its own inherent aromas and flavors. So mix all of that with the koji. And, and I think a prime example of that is traditional amino sauce or soy sauce making. When most styles of soy sauce are made, it's about 75% beans, soybeans, and 25% cracked wheat 
that has been toasted. And that toasting process gives those great caramelized and nutty toasty notes to the soy sauce. So whatever the, the base ingredients are, they bring along their own essence to it and just create foods that are just unparalleled and incredible. And, and I was reading as well, you were explaining that it has a practical impact on aging process, you know, on like uh, beef, for instance, or, you know, curing like for charcuterie and even, you know, you're using even for fried chicken. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for example, in the realm of charcuterie, before we get into the deliciousness of fried, ch uh, fried chicken, sure. if we make a, a brazola in a traditional means, it takes about 14 days for it to cure. Uh, that's, you know, on the salt and the spices. And then another two months, depending on your setup, maybe even three months for it to hang and dry to the point where it's, it's ready. So with using koji, we don't shorten the curing time because salt has, an, has a definite rate that it penetrates a piece of muscle. So it doesn't speed that up. But when it comes to the drying time, in some cuts, especially leaner cuts of meat, we can cut the drying time by as much as 60%. So there's been many times where we've taken an eye of round and made a brazola and from the time we hang it till we can slice it, it's been two to, th two to three weeks, you know, which is very practical for someone making charcuterie. The less time you have to have your meat hanging, the sooner you can bring it to market. And, you know, our intention with that is it can be cheaper. It can be more affordable and accessible for people because you've invested less time and labor into it. So, you know, with that, it's very practical. You know, in something with the fried chicken and, and at Larder, at the restaurant, we change, aside from two things, we change our whole menu every day. All of the, the specials we offer, the sandwiches, even we even rotate, you know, the charcuterie and the pickles and the deli salads are all different. The two things we offer all the time are our pastrami sandwich and our fried chicken sandwich. And in both of those, we use koji all over the place. So the fried chicken sandwich, it starts with a bun that we make, and it's a buttermilk bread recipe in which we culture the buttermilk with koji first, and it adds this wonderful cheesy note that's above and beyond what buttermilk would normally have. So we do that. We bake the bread. The chicken itself, you know, for those of you that, that kind of want to do this at home, we make a marinade of two parts buttermilk to one part amazaki, which is a liquid version of koji. And we marinate the, the chicken in there with a little bit of salt. We put a little bit of either hot sauce or, or, or cayenne in there. And our house spice mixture, which is a blend of toasted yeast. We take just regular baker's yeast and we toast it in an oven for about a 350 degree oven for about 45 minutes to an hour till it's just golden brown and malty. And we blend that with some caraway and juniper and black pepper and sesame and mustard seed. Uh, so we add that mixture to the chicken. We let it marinate. Sometimes 
if we're in a rush, it just gets about an hour. But other times, you know, we, we prefer to let it go overnight. And then we pre-cook the chicken before we fry it. So we'll bake it off on a sheet tray in the oven just, just until it's cooked. Uh, we typically bring it to about 155 and then let it carry over. And then once it's cooled, we put it back in the marinade. And then we go into the bread and the fry. So we designed this. One of the big reasons for us uh, was a food safety issue in the restaurant. We have a very small kitchen and we decided the less raw ingredients we had out during our service, the better. Um, it would just be safer and easier. So that was one of the reasons. The other reason too was when you order your chicken sandwich, we want you to have it within a few minutes. If you're frying chicken from raw, that can be a 10 to 15 minute process, depending on the cut and the size. So by pre-cooking it, it allows us to A, cook it perfectly every time, and then get it to you extremely fast. So the breading we use is equal parts all-purpose flour and cornstarch. Uh, we also put our house spice mixture into. So we've got your, your cooked marinated chicken, you dredge it, and then we fry at 325 just for a few minutes. So uh, the whole sandwich itself, we put on a, a house mayonnaise that we make. Uh, so it's uh, mayo, some of the mustard that we make, which is a, like a mix of a, a Midwestern spicy brown mustard and a whole grain mustard. We put some pickles on there and we dress the whole thing with uh, an oil and vinegar slaw. It's cabbage. It has cherry Kool-Aid pickled onions in it and lots of fresh dill. And the dressing for that is a vinaigrette that we make uh, with koji, our mustard and some oil. So put the whole thing together and you've got this beautiful, wow. beautiful fried chicken sandwich. So the, the koji part, beside like the vinaigrette that you just mentioned, is it is the liquid koji in the butter milk that you use as a marinade for the chicken, correct? Yes, yes. So it's, okay. it's in there both pre, before the chicken's cooked and after. And keep in mind, it's also, like you said, it's in the vinaigrette that dresses it. Sure. And it's in the bread, it's in the bun that, that the sandwich is Oh, it's is in the bun on. as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. What compelled you to, uh, to become a chef? I'd like to say it's, it's in my blood. My grandmother was a kosher caterer here in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And about the time I was 12, 13 years old, she had me and then a little bit of my brother's just a year younger than me. A little bit after that, my brother come and start helping her, start working for her in the kitchen. And while I did a few other things in my life, everything always came back to food. Uh, mm -hmm. And I grew up in a, a family that was very focused on the joy of eating and spending time together while eating and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's it was always there. And as I explored some of these other things that I might want to do in life, I kept realizing that it was cooking and sharing food with others that was really what made me happy. But is it true that you have a low density of taste buds? I was reading this in one of the 
interview that you, you had given. So how, how do you manage this situation in, in the, the job that you are doing? Yeah, yeah. So I do. And, and as individuals, we all have different densities of taste buds, the amount of mm-hmm. taste buds we have on our tongue. So some people have an exorbitant amount and they're like a super taster. And even the little bit of, bit of salt or sugar tastes incredibly salty or sweet to them. And then there's people on the opposite end of the spectrum, like me, who have a very low density. So, you know, I tend to overseason things because mm-hmm. I personally need, you know, much more salt or sugar or acid. So over the years, I've been told that my, my seasoning is very bold, is, is how people nicely put it. But, you know, I've had to develop an intuition that about as much as I want to season something, I've got to hold back about 25%, maybe even more in some cases. And the one that still gets me to this day that I still have trouble working with is bitterness. I virtually do not taste bitterness. I do recognize like a sensation with it, but I don't mm-hmm. register it as, as a taste necessarily like I would salt or sugar or, or acid. So, you know, there are lots of bitter greens. And when we deal with the wild mushrooms, there's a lot of wild mushrooms that while they are edible, they are very bitter. So over the years, you know, I've had to train or, or I shouldn't say train, but work with the people that work alongside me to be able to taste and pick up on those things where I would miss them. So first thing, if I think something is not bitter, right away, I have somebody else taste it to tell me if it is or not. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) You know, you're talking about like, you know, all the, the, the dishes that you have done, obviously, with, you know, with Koji, and then the menu that you have at, um, you know, Larder. Could you explain to us a little bit how do you approach creating like a new item on the menu? What's how does it start? What's your what's your source of inspiration first, and then and the creative process? Yeah. So first off, everything is a collaborative effort. You know, as much as one individual wants to take the helm, whether it's you know just instinctively or ego driven, whatever it is, it mm-hmm. it always has to be a collaborative process because. When you're making food to serve to large amounts of people, you have so many varying degrees of preferences for different things. So working as a team is really important. And I've got two great business partners. One is my wife, who I met in culinary school. Her name's Allie. Um, and she's one of the chefs and co-owners of, of Larder. And the other is is our business partner Kenny Scott, who who Allie and I met along the way, and and he's also chef and co owner. So the three of us work in tandem very often. You know, after that, the biggest thing is we decided at Larder that we would explore a different model of purchasing for the restaurant, and this is what has driven so many of our decisions with food. We decided instead of ordering, saying, oh, we have an order guide and these are the things we need to make the menu, that we would say to our farmers, who in season we buy almost everything from, we would say, we have this much money to spend with you this week. We've got $100 or $200, whatever it may be. 
bring us whatever you have. And sometimes we've gotten deliveries before where we've gotten 10 cases of eggplant. And we've said, okay, there's going to be a lot of eggplant and a lot of dishes the next week. And other times it's half a case of 20 different ingredients. And we have to say, well, how do we work kind of each one? And we just have a little bit of each. How do we work each one of these into, into the menu? So we, we rely very intensively on, you know, seasonality and what's available at a specific given time to create something and, and to develop something. So that's why we decided also that, you know, our menu would change every day. And in some instances too, right now we've had what we call a squash salad, um, in the deli case for, for at least a month at this point. But every couple of days, it's a different version of the squash salad. So this past week we had it, we guys started getting some, some hot peppers in. So, uh, we were bruleeing the peppers and bruleeing some onion and cooking it with the squash. Uh, yet the week before we were getting a lot of fresh basil in. So it was squash tossed in something like a pesto or a salsa verde. So, you know, we're continually relying on the ingredients and the people producing them to give us the inspiration. For us, it works out so wonderfully because we, there's only certain foods that we can offer at certain times of the year. For example, this year we, we, last summer we did a tomato sandwich that we make called a fresh and fried tomato sandwich. So it's fried green tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, herb mayo on there, and some, some beautiful, beautiful lettuces and, and, and a little bit of pickles on there. And, you know, we can only offer it for maybe six weeks out of the whole year. And people loved it so much last year that when we did it again this year, we were selling four times as many because people, it had been a year since people had eaten this food and they loved it ah. so much the first time. You're creating a need. <laughs> yeah, they were so ready for it to come back again. And, and you know, that's, that's the driver. That's the inspiration, that, that intense seasonality and enjoying something that is so special you know, that you hold it in high regard. So do you uh, structure, let's say, your menus almost with recipes that are rotating depending of like the, the fresh produce that you receive from, from the farmers in order to, you know, to, to be as quick as possible, I would say? Yeah, yeah. I, and that's a lot of what we do. So uh, we typically always have a, 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 some sort of crispy pork belly sandwich on our menu. And sometimes it's a breakfast sandwich that's on our bun with some pimento cheese and a fried egg. Other times, you know, it's in the middle of summer. We were just doing it as a BLT last week. So, you know, we, we kind of always, you know, we'll pick a theme uh, or a central ingredient and then just let the seasonality fall in around it. And that, that happens, you know, quite often. So, that makes things a little bit easier for us, you know, because we do have an option in some sort of game plan. But to be honest with you, you know, tomorrow morning when me and Allie and Kenny go into the delicatessen, we're going to open the walk-in door 
and we're going to say, okay, we've got a lot of this or a lot of that. <laughs> like, what, yeah. what are we going to do today? Uh, oftentimes, yeah. you know, we don't know the menu until, you know, two, maybe three hours before we open for the day. And you do that every day? We do that every day. Wow. You know, a, a lot of times we try to make something, you know, a, or a version of something that we know that we could run for, you know, two, maybe three days. But oftentimes, because people are drawn to what's what's rapidly changing at our restaurant, often when we make something that we think is going to last us a few days, it's often sold out the first day because people are so excited to try it. So I, I would like to pivot the discussion here. Maybe it's a, a more, you know, intense, I would say, like a topic, but I I read a few weeks ago in the uh, Edible uh, Cleveland uh, magazine that you wrote a very moving article about the situation of uh, the kitchen and people that are struggling with, you know, with addiction. It could be drugs or it could be, um, you know, alcohol. So it was very, in the article, you were talking about the fact that it was very true and, you know, that the, the, the kitchen world was very impacted and insecure, you know, with maybe like one or two decades ago. Do you think this is changing, that um, it's, it's uh, going, moving like uh, towards like a, a better situation? I, you know, I do. And, and let's preface this by saying too, I've been, I've been in recovery. I've been sober from using drugs and alcohol for April was 18 years for me. So this has always been something at least, you know, and and I'm 37 years old. So I got, I got sober at 19. So almost at this point, half my life has been focused on sobriety, at least for me individually. You know, I definitely think there is a lot that has changed. There used to be a time when, you know, Friday and Saturday night, the end of service, cocaine was rampant in restaurants, you know, and people would actually do it in the kitchen. And now you don't see such drastic behavior. So it isn't as in your face as it's been. But I think part of that has contributed to people being, I guess, ashamed that they're using or hiding it or trying to cover it up. So while the environment and what's acceptable and, you know, acceptable behavior in a kitchen has definitely changed, I don't think we've put focus on letting people know, like, there's, if they have a problem, they, they can deal with it. And there's going to be people around them that, will help them get through it and support them in their decision. And that's what I think is has been drastically lacking. The attention to saying, you know, maybe having three or four shift drinks every night is is not normal. Most people, you know, the uh the accountant doesn't get off at five o'clock and and have three or four drinks every day or the car dealer or whatever. I mean, of course, other industries and other professions, it's, it's just as prevalent, but it's more so enabled in kitchens uh, because of a couple things. A, most restaurants serve alcohol or at least cook with it. So it's always there. They're very high stress environments. And for, for many, many people, 
you know, having a drink at the end of the day is, is a good way to relax and relieve stress. On top of that, kitchens for many, many years, they've been havens for people who maybe couldn't get a job in another place for various reasons. People who like to party or stay up at night and, and uh, do that thing. That sort of thing. So, and and you, you even wrote in the article uh, something that catch my eyes was says that it was a, like a badge of honor and showing up, you know, still drunk and and being considered almost like a badass, you know, with uh, <laughs> So I, I thought that was that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, you know, even somewhat recently, you know, I've seen behavior in in some kitchens where that's still a thing and. You know, I remember being in culinary school and having chef instructors who they were in their prime as line cooks coming up in, in New York City or L.A. or or Paris or, you know, Berlin in, in uh, the 80s. And some of the stories they would tell us, you know, they were drunk and high on cocaine for years, you know, not just single evenings, you know, and, and that was how you worked and that was the lifestyle. You know, so like I said, that I feel is rapidly changing. And I, I think now, you know, our big focus needs to be that you can work in this profession, you can embrace it and you don't, you don't need those things. You know, if, if you're, if you're someone that has a problem, you know, I don't, I don't want people listening to this to think like, oh, I have a couple shift drinks every time, but you know, every day, am I, am I an alcoholic or? You know, maybe they, they use drugs recreationally every once in a while. It's, it's when these things become a problem for the individual is when they're a problem. So, you know, and, and just creating, I think, just like any other workspace, would it be okay for a teacher to, you know, be doing shots and, and have a joint in their desk that they use throughout the day? you know, or a librarian or a doctor, like, you know, other, other workplaces have professional standards. And I think kitchens need to just do a little more work to be brought up to them. And also be having conversations with their employees. Like if, if you need help, let's get you help. Let's do what we all can to, to make that accessible for people. So what advice could you share with um you know for people who need help? I mean the the first thing is if someone doesn't want help or doesn't know they or hasn't realized that they may need it yet because it's often a self-realization that's the first thing. If the individual doesn't want it no matter how much you give to them it's a waste of everybody's time. And that's the unfortunate thing with addiction and alcoholism. The individual has to want to get help. You know, and if you're at the point where you feel even if you're not convinced yet, but you feel, well, maybe I'm drinking too much or maybe I'm partying too much. Maybe this is negatively impacting, you know, my life, my work life, my home life, whatever it is. The first thing to do is to ask for help. You know, a lot of kitchens do have people and not just the kitchen, front of the house, the, you know, the whole restaurant. There are people in recovery or people know other people who, who are sober and in recovery. So it's very easy by word of mouth to find resources. We shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't have this stigma 
about, you know, alcoholism and, and drug addiction and, and being associated with bad people and this sort of thing. So that's what we have to do. We can't ostracize people. We have to get them to understand that you can get help. It can be treated and mm-hmm. uh, that you can be productive and, and have an impactful life for yourself. Okay, thank thank you so much, uh, Chef, uh, for um, you know sharing all your thoughts about this and and your advice and and your testimonials, you know, about this um, very uh, difficult situation. Before we uh, let you go to back to your um, day, I would like to finish the uh, the conversation with a series of rapid fire questions, if uh, it's okay with you. Sure, sure. So you and I are going on a tasting tour either in Ohio City or Cleveland. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? There's some absolutely fantastic restaurants. So I think first and foremost, we would go to the West Side Market, one of the nation's oldest publicly owned markets. It's open air. We'd stop by Kate's Fish and we'd probably slurp down a couple oysters. We'd also look at their fish because they have a beautiful selection of fish out of Lake Erie, which is what we use at, at the restaurant. So we'd go there. There's fantastic restaurants such as the Black Pig, named after black varieties of, of pigs. And they bring one in every couple of weeks and their menu focuses on it. There's the Plum, which is oh, absolutely yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Been there, my friend, uh, Brett Sawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brett, he's my friend too. He's fantastic. His yeah, he's that a great he guy. Creates. There's just over from Cleveland, the, the first inner ring western suburb is Lakewood. And there is Salt, which Chef Jill Veda is over there. And it's fantastic. She's doing small plates and just doing absolutely wonderful food. And then I think we'd go to the east side of the city. And Cleveland has the only Asia town in the state of Ohio. And one of my favorite restaurants is called Han Kebab. And they, their house specialty is Peking duck. And you do not have to call the day ahead to order it. It's always there and always available. And they also have a fantastic woodier mushroom cold salad that's out of this world. So what's your favorite guilty pleasure food? I don't even know if I'd, I'd, I wouldn't say guilty, just favorite pleasure for me is caviar. Oh, caviar. Wow. Okay. And and I make caviar. I learned from uh, a Ukrainian friend of mine. She's, Klava is uh, in her late 60s, maybe early 70s at this point, but uh, she emigrated from Ukraine and came from an area of Ukraine that was a, a caviar producing region. And she taught me how to make caviar. So in the fall and in the spring, when certain species of fish are spawning up here in, in the lake, we get lots of trout roe. And we make a lot of caviar at Larder. And I eat a lot of caviar. I love it. Any, any type, all types. I probably eat it about once a week. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Have you... Have you have you experimented Koji on it? Yeah, yeah, we have. And and for that we we kind of leave the caviar realm and we get more into Botarga. And yeah. that I eat just as often as as I eat caviar. So okay. um yeah. <laughs> uh, that that's that that would probably be it. Chocolate's a second uh, a close second. What's the strangest thing that you have ever eaten? 
that's all within context, right? I, I, I think eating sea cucumber and jellyfish would be normal for somebody from Taiwan or Hong Kong. But here it would be, oh, you're a weirdo. Likewise, eating cheese here is normal, but somebody in, in Taiwan or Hong Kong would be like, eh, I don't know about that. So I think that's all relative. But I think one of the more extraordinary things that I ever had the opportunity to eat was a Korean wedding kimchi. So, and I forget the Korean name for it, but in traditional families, when a daughter is born, a batch of kimchi is made. And it is then gifted to her and her husband on their wedding. So I had one that was, I think, 24 or 25 years old. It was fantastic. It was exceptional. Just the experience of it, the flavors of it, it was just, it was just mind-blowing. And it's an experience that I doubt I'll ever have as, as a Jewish boy from Cleveland. I don't know if I'll have that experience again in my life. Again, okay. What are like the three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your life? Definitely the top two would be Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking and The Art of Fermentation or even Wild Fermentation by Sander Katz, because that's what's really his, his book before The Art of Fermentation. It, you know, as uh, someone who grew up in the late 80s into the 90s and went to culinary school in the early 2000s. If, if I didn't say the French Laundry cookbook in there, um, <laughs> I'd be a miss. Okay. What's uh, your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Not wiping down your work surface. If you just prepared something on it, wipe it down before you move to the next thing. So my last question. So if I would come to your house and open your fridge and your cupboards, what's uh, or cabinets, what? kind of condiments or special sauces or spice do you have on hand at home? So I, being someone who works with Koji, I make a lot of condiments. So various amino sauces made from everything from beef to beans, amino pastes, very similar like miso and that sort of thing. Uh, we have a lot of, my wife and I love Sazon, especially with the saffron. So we always have that in the spice cabinet. Uh, we also love cumin. That's the spice we use most often at home. And always, 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 we have a nice collection of maple syrup. We're, we're in the part of the, this northern Great Lakes, you know, the Midwest into the upper Northeast. You know, we, we love our maple syrup. So we get some great ones that are aged in bourbon barrels and that sort of thing. And, and we always have a nice little collection. Very cool. Chef, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate um, uh, you know, the time that you have given us. So uh, thank you. You're very welcome. And thanks so much for having me on. Wasn't this a cool episode about Koji? I think I want to grow Koji on everything now in my kitchen. I want to thank Chef Jeremy Omansky for sharing his inspirational story. If you like today's episode, please share it with another chef or a food enthusiast. I want to give a shout out to a great forum and educational resource for chefs called The Learning Chef. It is created by chefs and for chefs. They have a great Facebook page and Facebook group. It's called The Learning Chef. Please check it out. 
If you are not following us yet on Instagram and Facebook, please do it at flavorsunknown.com. Thank you. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.